Psalm number 8. And we'll take some time now to study this psalm this evening. Psalm 8. And our theme this evening is God, creation and us. God, creation and us. Well, in the heart of this psalm is perhaps the question, the most important question any man, woman or child could ever ask. It's the question we find in Psalm 8 verse 4. What is man? Who are we? Why are we here? What is man? If you were to ask that question to those who place their faith in atheistic evolution, they would tell you that we are here because we evolved better and faster than everything else. And it's really up to us to find a purpose, if there even is a purpose to our existence. We are simply soulless beasts, more impressive beasts than the ones we gop at in the zoos, but beasts nonetheless. If you were to ask those who believe in some vague spirituality, uh, the increasing number of people in our society today who say that they are spiritual but not religious, they would give you the sort of answer you get in the Lion King movie, that we're all connected in a circle. Every living thing has equal spiritual value. We're all one. And you can have as profound a spiritual experience looking at a tree as you can doing anything else. Some people might even suggest that we are gods, that there is no more valuable or important beings than us, and therefore all our focus should really be on ourselves, on our own impressiveness, whether physical, uh, in intellectual, or whatever the case may be. And indeed, if, you're, if you see some of the perfume or aftershave adverts on TV, or if you look at the obsession with image and body in our culture, that essentially is the belief of many, whether they put it in those terms or not. We are gods who should simply please ourselves and do our best to improve ourselves. What is man? Well, Psalm 8 gives us a different answer. And notice how the question here in verse Psalm, look at, look at the way it is asked in verse 3, uh, leading up to it rather in verse 3. When I, Psalm says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars that you have set in place, and then comes the question, what is man? In other words, we can't rightly and accurately think about who we are until we've considered who God is. Because that's what the psalmist has done in this psalm. He looks at the work of God and then he thinks about the identity of man. Psalm 8 begins and ends the same way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If we want to know who we are First, we need to be clear about who God is, the creator of this whole universe, as well as the creator of us. So first of all, this evening, let's think about the majestic God of creation. The majestic God of creation. King David is the author of this psalm. And notice that once again, uh, he shows us the personal relationship he has with God. Uh, verse 1, O Lord, and again, as I've highlighted in the last few weeks, the word there, Lord, is in block capitals. It's Yahweh. It's the personal name of God. And then the second Lord is not in block capitals. It's a word that just means ruler or master or leader. And so he's saying, O Lord, 
Yahweh, my God, my Saviour, our Lord, the ruler of all of us. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And the word there for majestic is not a word that we see popping up a lot in our Old Testament. Uh, One definition of it is describing actions that show great physical power, either natural or supernatural. If you turn on your TV uh, this last week or two or the week or two still to come, you will see great demonstrations of natural physical power uh, going on in Tokyo at the Olympics. There's been some incredible events already. Uh, Quite often uh, when we've turned it on, it seems to have been the the gymnasts, the, the people swinging around the bars and doing all these flips. And it's incredible. And, and in a sense it is, it's majestic to see that what the human body is capable of. My human body isn't capable of it, but some people's are. And it's incredible to see it. Well, here's an even more majestic, incredible sight, David says. That God has spread out the heavens and created the stars and, and put together the very bodies that we are praising and in awe of. In Tokyo at the minute. Point is by by calling God majestic here, friends. David is saying that he can praise God for very. There there is clear evidence that David has that fuels his praise. He's not praising God in an academic way or a theoretical way. David can point to things and say, "Look at that. There's an example of God's majesty." And the first thing that David can point to, of course, is creation itself. He says at the end of verse 1, You have set your glory above the heavens. One glance up at the sky, David says, and we can see the glory of God. As we thought about as we look, when we looked at Genesis earlier this year, the world exists to show us the glory of God, the variety and the detail and the mystery and the majesty of creation. It's there as a witness to someone even more majestic than creation itself. No wonder Satan puts so much time and energy into persuading us, to trying to persuade us to believe that this world is just a chemical, biological, physical accident. Satan doesn't want men and women stopping to consider, as David says here, the world in which they live. Because that question would force them to consider the majestic God who made it all. I was watching, saw a brief uh, clip a few weeks ago of a man who was walking Hadrian's Wall uh, in England. And he, he caught sight of this beautiful sunset at one point. And I don't believe, based on what I know of this, he's a TV presenter and an actor. I don't believe he's a, a Christian And he was looking at this beautiful sunset and he said, that's almost spiritual. See, if we stop and think for even just a few moments, there's something in us that realizes there's more to our existence and more to this world than just academic study of of color and sight and sound. There's something behind it all. But then David gives further evidence for believing that God is a majestic God. Another piece of evidence for it Uh, He says in verse 2, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength or praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established praise. 
As I mentioned earlier, a lot of us had to learn those words in Sabbath school. Maybe boys and girls, some of you have had to learn those words in recent years. What do they really mean? Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established praise. Well, certainly one thing that David is saying here is that this majestic God takes particular delight in receiving praise from weak and needy people. Whether that's weak and needy adults or weak and needy boys and girls. God is interested in us. God loves us and he delights to hear us praise him. Notice what David says in verse 2. He says, babies and infants. In other words, the lowest, the, the most vulnerable, the weakest. In some ways, certainly increasingly in our own culture, the least important in the world's opinion. David says, God has enabled those little ones to overcome their foes and their enemies and those who attack them. Who is David thinking of when he thinks about babies and infants overcoming their enemies? Well, maybe he's thinking about himself. David was the youngest of seven sons. He was the one that got the job that no one else in the house wanted, going out to look after the sheep. He was the one that his father didn't even think to bother calling in when Samuel came looking for a new king. And yet God, by, by God's strength and grace, David became king. And before he even became king, he defeated Goliath and escaped from Saul. He overcame his enemies and his foes. But maybe David is also thinking of the nation of Israel. A nation that was in many ways a baby, an infant compared to the other nations of the world. Abraham had been a pagan man and he was an old man. He was too old to be the father of, of nations. But that's exactly what God made Abraham, the father of nations. And when that nation was attacked by Pharaoh, Pharaoh tried to wipe them out. Ten plagues later, he ended up at the bottom of the Red Sea. Every time Israel looked weak and vulnerable like a little child, the strength of God brought them through. He had rescued them from danger. He had heaped blessing upon blessing upon them. And their response was to praise God. Like Miriam did after the Red Sea or Jacob when he arrived back in Canaan or David all through his life. And so, friends, David can call God a majestic God because he sees God's power in creation and he sees God's powerful compassion in the lives of his weak and needy people. And so, again, you see, we can't answer the question about who we are unless we first know who God is. And our God takes special delight in helping the weak of this world the despised, the marginalized, the vulnerable. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he declared, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. We won't learn to trust God. We won't have any relationship with God until we realize that we are weak and needy people. And sometimes it's when we're in our, our weakest, most vulnerable, most needy state that we realize afresh the goodness and grace of God for us. Sometimes it's in those moments that we are drawn more closely to God and rejoice in God more than ever before. The Apostle Paul with whip scars on his back writing from prison could say, when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Friends, our weakness draws us towards the majesty of God. One writer says, the witness of believers might be most effective when they continue praising God even while suffering sorrow and loss. And isn't that true? Isn't it the stories of martyrs and of those who have suffered more than we would ever care to imagine? And we see what, how, what God has brought them through and we see how he has used them. And they testify to us, don't they? And perhaps even those that we know and love testify to us of the goodness and the grace of God. Horatio Spafford was a Christian man living in America in the 1800s. In 1873, he decided to take his wife and four daughters to England for a holiday. And when it came time for them to leave, Spafford was held up with business in America. And so he sent his wife and daughters ahead of him on a ship called the Ville du Havre to England. On the 22nd of November 1873, the ship collided with another vessel in the Atlantic Ocean. 226 people on board died, including Spafford's four daughters. His wife sent word to him of what had happened when she arrived in England. And as he sailed across the ocean to meet her, Spafford wrote the words of a famous hymn. The hymn's entitled, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. In his heartache and his weakness, Horatio Spafford continued to testify to the majesty and care of his God. That was when he experienced the care of God and knew who he was and knew who God was more than ever before. I wonder, are our lives likewise marked, friends, at every turn by giving due honour and praise to our majestic God, no matter what circumstances we may find ourselves in? Can you take comfort and reassurance and joy from knowing that the same God who moulded the mountains, who sent the rain last week to, uh, to uh, quench the parched ground, and who has created everything and all of it very good, that he also has created you, knows you, and has special care for you. The majestic God of creation. But secondly, the psalm speaks to us of the special position of man in creation. The special position of man in creation. If you read over the psalm a few times, you notice that David repeatedly mentions the heavens. He says in verse 1 that God has set his glory above the heavens. He says in verse 3, when I look at your heavens, he mentions the angels or heavenly beings in verse 5. And we can imagine David Maybe lying on his back out in the fields as he looked after the sheep, staring up at the night sky, looking at the vast array of stars, the billions of stars up in the sky. And he's in awe of it and he praises God for the beauty of it. And David didn't even know as much about the stars as we do. He didn't know that our Milky Way galaxy is just one of maybe a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. He didn't know that amongst those stars or eight or nine uh, planets, depending on whether you count the last one or not, uh, and, and how someday we might be able to travel to them and take pictures of them and learn about them. But nonetheless, David's looking up at the starry sky, vast and unreachable, and it leads him to ask the key question of the psalm, what is man? 
What is man? What is our position in creation? Who are we? What is our purpose? And as I said at the beginning, there's really two opposite mistakes we could make in answering that question. First mistake would be to think too lowly of ourselves, to think too little of ourselves as human beings. That's essentially what the atheistic evolutionists do. They draw those pictures of a little monkey and slightly bigger monkey in front of that and all of a sudden a bigger ape in front of that and hey presto then a human being in front of that and that's where we've come from and we're just highly evolved beasts with opposable thumbs. We're just animals occupying one slither of space in a big empty universe end of story. In 2017, popular astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, an American man, he's one of these sort of celebrity scientists in America, uh, he said, if you look up into the night sky and feel small, it's because you had an ego unjustifiably large to begin with. And there's some truth in that. That's in part, that's what David's saying in this psalm. When I look up at the heavens, what is man? But it's a double-edged sword, what Tyson says there. Because on one hand, we do have a tendency to think ourselves more important than we are. But Tyson went on then to say that we're basically just stardust. Talked about how we, you know, he says we, we came from the stars. We're a happy accident of physical, biological, chemical forces. And again, he mentions the word spiritual. He says it's almost spiritual, a part of this huge cosmic design or universe it sounds like he's saying we're special but actually you could argue he's saying we're pointless microscopic dots in an infinitely vast universe and then the other extreme as i said earlier is to think too highly of ourselves and that's what our culture encourages us to do social media the magazine covers your body your image your reputation you, 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 me, me, me. We're living in the kind of culture Paul describes in Romans 1 where we are worshipping and serving created things including the human body rather than worshipping God. We think too highly of ourselves. Psalm 8 brings wonderful, beautiful balance to this. Look at verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. David looks at the spread of the heavens. And yes he puts himself low compared to God. And compared to the vastness of the universe that God has made. Yes we are tiny. But look how David balances it out in verse 5. Yet he says you have made him that's mankind. A little lower than the heavenly beings. That means just below the angels. And crowned him with glory and honour. So David says, where are we in the universe? We're just below the angels. And we are crowned with glory and honour. We are special to God. We have importance and value to God that the rest of creation does not have. We're created in verse 5 for glory and honour. No, we are not God's. But nor are we beasts. We are under God. But we are over the rest of creation. We're part of creation. But we are the best part of creation. We are the pinnacle of creation. Because we are image bearers of God. Cared for by God. 
able to have a relationship with God. We might live on a tiny blue dot that looks like a speck if you take a photo from the rings of Saturn. But that tiny blue dot still matters because that's the only place in the whole universe where God has put people who bear his image. It's so important to keep this balanced understanding of who we are. If we're walking in his word, obedient to his will, we're not going to fall into the trap of worshipping ourselves, but nor are we going to end up with the mistaken notion that we don't matter, that we're not important. And so Psalm 8 bestows profound dignity and value and importance on your existence from the youngest person in this room or watching online to the oldest. Whether you're happy about who you are or not, single or married, sporty or not so sporty, smart or not so smart, whoever you are, Psalm 8 says you're in a special position. You have been given dignity, value and worth by the majestic God of creation. And of course, there are all kinds of implications from this for our society today. It has to be said once again that this truth, of course, means that there should be no debate at all about abortion. It is evil, pure and simple. It also means there should be no discussion about whether people have the right to call themselves whatever gender they like. We are God's creation. He has designed us, made us in his image, male and female. End of story. We have been made by God to know God, obey God and enjoy God. The implication being as well that if we do not know God, we're not going to know our purpose. We're not going to have a sense of security and identity in our lives. And we will be looking for that identity in all the wrong places. And of course, we know that that's exactly what has happened in our world. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve. They were made with glory and honour. But the glory and honour of being image bearers of God has been distorted. It's been ruined. It's been besmirched by our sin. The result is that even this beautiful world we live in isn't what it could be or should be. Our work tires us out and sometimes gives us no enjoyment at all. The sheep and oxen get sick and fail to provide. Viruses spread. Accidents happen. Forests and mountains and oceans are full of good things for us to enjoy, but they're also full of dangers for us to avoid. And we ourselves are not the way we should be or can be, and creation is not the way it should be and could be. And all of that means that when we read the last few verses of Psalm 8, Maybe at first they sound a little bit hollow to us. If you look at uh, verse, the end of verse 5, for example, crowned with glory and honour. speaks of having perfect dominion over all of our work, all of creation under our feet. Does that really sound like the experience that we have in this fallen world? Everything under our feet, everything under control? No, it doesn't. So who exactly is David talking about here? Well, look at the end of verse 4. He is specifically talking about the Son of Man. Yes, he's talking about mankind in general, but verse 4 mentions the Son 
of man. And so we've thought about the majestic God of creation. We've thought about our special place in creation. Thirdly and finally this evening, the Son of Man ruling over creation. The Son of Man ruling over creation. It's this one Son of Man who enjoys creation perfectly, who sees everything he does prosper, the works of his hands perfectly done, everything under his feet, and that expression under his feet is a way of saying everything under his control. Nothing shocks this Son of Man. Nothing upsets this Son of Man. Illness or injury can't destroy this Son of Man. This Son of Man is crowned with glory and honour. This Son of Man is enjoying the special position that God gave him perfectly. Is there any human being that completely fulfills the words of this psalm? Yes, there is. The Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 8 is about God's majesty and his creation. It's about our place in that creation. But it's also a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who would become man. Who would take the special position that God has created for mankind. And who would live out that special position. Live out a human existence perfectly. Psalm 8 is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not just my opinion. The New Testament tells us that Jesus fulfills the words of this psalm. We read earlier Hebrews chapter 2 and and in Hebrews 2 verse 9, after quoting a large chunk of Psalm 8, the writer says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Adam and Eve lost their glory and honour and we fell with them and lost our glory and honour. But the majestic God wasn't willing to leave it at that. He sent Jesus Christ to restore men and women to that glory and honour. In the greatest of God's majestic works, he sent salvation for fallen men and fallen women in Jesus Christ. And today, friends, Jesus rules from heaven. And he has all things under his feet. He rules over COVID and cancer and flash floods and mortgages and exam results and everything in between. Nothing and no one can touch Jesus. Nothing and no one can take away the glory and honour that Jesus has earned. He came down into this world, did his Father's will, died for sinners and has risen again in victory. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the firstborn over all creation. That means he gets to inherit it all. It all belongs to him. He has earned it. The perfect son of man. We sometimes like to think that we have everything under control, under our feet. And then two minutes later, we can't find our car keys. And we realise how little we have under our control. Happened to me just on Friday afternoon. Hannah and her mum and Sophia were heading out somewhere. Headed out in the car. I thought right I'll head out and get myself some lunch somewhere. Two minutes later Hannah sends a photo from the car. My car keys inside her car. I'm going nowhere. At least not in the car. And we sometimes realise how little we have under our feet. Under our control. 
Some of you, your health isn't under your feet. Some of you have family issues, family challenges not under your feet. Some of you have a week or a month or a year ahead and we don't even know it yet but it's not going to be under our feet. But nothing, nothing is out of the control of the Son of Man. Death itself is under his feet. Sickness, sadness, suffering is all under his feet. He's the Son of Man whose life and death and resurrection are the greatest display of the majestic power of Yahweh our Lord. And if your trust is in the saving work of this Son of Man, if you believe that he has all things under his feet and by extension under your feet, then it gives you new identity, a new purpose, a new peace. That's what our society is so concerned about today, isn't it? Identity. Born this way is the slogan of our, of our world. Born again this way is the slogan of the Bible. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Scripture says you are a new creation. You were born one way, you can be born again another way. Born again to know and love God. Born again by the power of the risen Jesus. Born again to inherit a world that will be made perfect someday. So who are you and why are you here? Well, you're not a beast and you're not a God. You're weak yet loved, small yet valuable, limited yet cared for. And although it might feel like very little is under your feet today, there is one Son of Man who has everything under his feet. Jesus Christ, who became lower than the angels so that we could someday rise to be with the angels and join them in declaring forever, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.